617, respond to report of shots fired. The Coroner Talk podcast takes you behind the scenes with coroners, clinicians, and death investigators from around the world to provide training, news, and interviews from leading experts in the area of death investigation and scene management, bringing real stories and solid training together in one source. Now, here's your host, Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of Coroner Talk and still... The second week of February 2020, and we are still the only podcast in iTunes dedicated to the men and women working the field of death investigation and those of you in supporting roles. I appreciate you coming along with me again this week. So staying with our theme this month in February of 2020, we are going to continue talking about infant and child death. And today, I have a special guest on the show, the connected via phone, Kathleen Hargrove. Now, she is a senior investigator with St. Louis County, Jefferson County Medical Examiner's Offices, St. Charles County as well. And she specializes in infant and child death cases. Now, some of what we talk about today is going to seem like a little bit of a repeat of last week. And there are some a few topics that you know, are kind of similar topics, but she explains it her way and she kind of adds to it. And then, of course, we talk about new stuff like the using the studio form and scene reenactments with dolls and and investigating older children and things like that. So there's a lot of stuff we didn't talk about last week. But yes, you may hear a little touch on a topic from last week. But again, uh, just because it's the touch of the topic doesn't mean that she doesn't explain it in a lot of cases better than I did. So stick with us through the entire show. I know that you'll uh, get a lot of good out of listening uh, on my conversation with Kathleen. Now, Remember, uh, like I said last week, we have a lot of training coming up in February, uh, correction, in March, it's February now, a lot of training coming up in March, the MDI classroom, MDI online, we're going to be in Texarkana for Advanced Homicide, Southern California for a three-day MDI that I'm teaching there, a lot going on, again, you can find that at cornertalk.com, go to the Academy link, go to the training calendar schedule, and you'll see that. But remember also, last week I mentioned that if you wanted to get a discount on the online course, Proper Death Notification Procedures, which was what last month's topic was, you can do that by going to cornertalk.com, clicking on the training, go to online learning, online learning through the Death Investigation Academy, uh, and, you know, the URL, I'll tell you what that is. You can go to ditacademyonline.org. Now, that's a lot to remember. So if you just go to Coroner Talk, our podcast page, you'll be able to just go to online learning. Now, once you get to, to our online training portal, you're going to find a lot of courses in there. So find the proper death notification course. It's priced currently at $27.00. You can get that for $10 by simply going, just enrolling in the course. And when you get ready to check out, use a coupon code, death notification 10. So when you get ready to check out, use the coupon code, death notification 10. And that's with a one and a zero, not spelled out. 
Death Notification 10, that's going to take it down to a $10 fee, and you'll get that course for $10. All the same course, same credit, same everything. But this isn't going out to anybody but a podcast listeners, and it will expire the last day of February 2020. So if you don't take advantage of it, then you won't get the advantage. So again, if you want that course, go and take advantage of that quickly. All right, without any further delay, let's get into this conversation I had with Kathleen. We have kind of an extended full episode this time. So let's get into that now. Adjust your earbuds, turn up those speakers and hang on. It's now time for this week's featured conversation. All right, and we're back with uh, Kathleen Hargrave. Kathleen, thank you for joining us today. I hope you're having a wonderful day. I am. Thank you for having me. Oh, I appreciate you taking the time. I, I've introduced you a little bit, you know, as far as where you work now and some of your background, but um, and so everybody kind of knows who you are in that, res- that respect. But take just a second and kind of tell us a little bit more about your background. Who do you work for? How long you've been in death investigation? Uh, things like that. Let's, let my listeners get to know you a little bit. Okay, sure. Be glad to do that. Um, Again, my name is Kathleen Hargrave. Um, As far as my educational background goes, I'm a graduate of St. Louis University with a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. I also have a master's, a master of arts in health services management at Webster University. I've been employed at St. Louis University in the Division of Forensic Pathology, which is a university-based medical examiner system for the past 25 years and have held uh, numerous positions here. In my current position in this division, I've been in my current position for 13 years as the manager of forensic operations and the chief forensic investigator for St. Charles, Jefferson, and Franklin County's Medical Examiner's Office, which is in the St. Louis metropolitan area. I have a special area of interest of infant death investigation. As far as my professional involvement, I've been a member of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences for 14 years, and in 2011, I gained my fellow status. I've been an affiliate investigator member of the National Association of Medical Examiners also for 14 years, and with that organization, I'm also a past name board of director. I was on their board from 2008 through 2013. I'm the current president of the Society of Medical Legal Death Investigators. Uh, since 2015 in SOMDI. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but uh, SOMDI, the Society of Medical Legal Death Investigators, is a professional association exclusively for medical legal death investigators. And um, uh, I encourage you to look up SOMDI if you're not familiar with it because their mission is to promote training and education and uh, encourage professional certification through the American Board of uh, Medical Legal Death Investigators. Um, Let's see, I'm, I'm also a diplomat with the American Board of Medical Legal Death Investigators for the past uh, 10 years. Um, I'm a faculty member for St. Louis University's Medical Legal Death Investigator Training Course. I've been on faculty since 2005. Uh, currently, I present the role of the death investigator and infant death investigation, as well as an interactive SUDI workshop. I'm a contributing author for the Sudden Unexplained Infant Death Investigation Training Text, as well as a member of all five of the National Sudden Unexplained Infant Death Investigations Train the Trainer Academies, which were sponsored through the CDC um, Control and Prevention. Those training academies ran across the country from 2006 through 2008. I'm also a mentor. I was a mentor through the National Institute of Justice 
National Missing and Unidentified Persons Training Academy. Those were the NamUs Training Academies. Those also went across the country, uh, started in uh, St. Louis in July of 10 and ended in Atlanta in November of 2011. I've given numerous presentations as well as published materials on infant death investigation. I'm actively involved in committee work for SOMDI, AAFS, and NAME. And um, I think it's important to point out to your audience that the presentations that I give on SUDI, on infant death investigation, have been approved through various uh, continuing education bodies. So, yeah, so uh, infant death investigation is my is my uh, is my passion, and it's kind I of guess. your specialty and your passion. And and with all of that, I will. I've only I've only met you two or three times in in person. Um, and but with all of that, I will say, um. You're just about as down to earth as any of their other investigators. We, you know, we're just all the same people, right? And with all of that, yep. you know, you certainly could walk around with your head held a little higher, but you are one of the most contactable, down to earth people that that I've met in this industry. And and you do and you do a great job. And let me just let me just say this, and we'll get on to the actual real topic here. But but you're well known in Missouri. But I talk to people all across the United States in in, in this podcast, and your name is known across the country. So you're you're not just a St. Louis, Missouri person. Whenever I talk about Kathleen Hargrave from St. Louis, they're like, oh, yeah, we know Kathleen, or we've seen her speak, or we know who she is. So you bring a, a, a wealth, not only of information, but a lot of credibility to the topic we're getting ready to talk about. And so, again, I just thank you for taking the time to do that, because you certainly didn't have to, and I know you're very busy, but um, you yeah, are, no, you are no, very well known. I'm, I'm- yeah, well, I, I appreciate you know those those nice comments, but I think it's important for your audience to know that there are nationally recognized best practice protocols for infant death investigation, and we refer to those as SUDI protocols. So, it's it's just it's it's extremely important for those standards to be upheld throughout every jurisdiction, being a medical examiner or coroner office, big or small, and in the smaller communities that really rely on law enforcement, we really need to make sure that we're all on the same you know, on the same page when we're talking about infant death investigations because you have to be prepared to do these as a, it's a team effort. It's a multidisciplinary approach when you're doing these infant death investigations. Right, and I am, I'm a big proponent in standardization, uh, not only in infant death, but in all death investigation. I mean, I, I, I don't always believe in government interference in everything, but I, I know that we're working on getting standardization, and I'm all about that. Because I, the problem is, from, from county to county, state to state, things are different, and there's a lot of deaths not actually. So these SUDI protocols for death investigation, that's how I want to cover this today, is because these are the common practices. These are the best ways to do things. Things change. There's a little bit uh, here and there that may be different from from jurisdiction, but I want to get into the, the 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 meat of the topic here. And and yes, let's stick to the actual guidelines so we're teaching the right stuff. I, I very much uh, uh, agree with that. One of the things I want to start with is, um, and you've already hit on it a little bit. Uh, we need to be prepared before an infant or a child dies. We need to be prepared because it is an interdisciplinary thing. We've got health department, we've got EMS, we've got fire, we've got police maybe. Whatever the situation is, what are some things we can do as a death investigator, whether it be a coroner, ME, or police, to make sure we're prepared the next time we get that call? Well, the the first and foremost, being familiar with the SUDI uh, death reporting form. So the SUDI protocol encourages the use of the SUDI form. The SUDI form can be downloaded from the CDC's website. So it is it is um, 
it is something that every single person has access to. It's not just um, stuck in one person's office. Um, if you if you can't remember the full SUDI uh, website, if you just Google SUDI, S-U-I-D-I, CDC, the SUDI protocols will come up. So you need to educate yourself on what these CDC protocols are. The entire training academy text is online and available for free. So if you've never done it, I would encourage everyone to go on to the CDC's website, download the training text, and read it front to back. And also download the SUDI reporting form and be very, very familiar with the information that you're going to be uh, collecting on the SUDI form. I have several infant deaths under my belt throughout the years, and I would never go to a scene without the SUDI form in my hand. For one, it is such a volatile, emotional, you're dealing with so many levels of emotion, and you have to be prepared for all these different levels of emotion. But when a, when a family member who is grieving over the loss of their uh, baby sees that you are you are actually asking them standardized questions it gives it, it gives them it, 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 it they don't feel like you're being accusatory towards them they see that you are collecting the information that you have collected on every single person and when i start out a an infant death investigation interview process i tell them you know i am so sorry for your loss i is i am a, i am as sincere as I can be because I truly am. I cannot even imagine what these family members are going through. And I just say, I am so sorry for your loss, and I am so sorry that I am going to have to ask you a whole bunch of questions right now. And I, I have this form in my hand showing them, I am so sorry, I'm going to have to ask you these questions. But these questions, the answers you give me, we are going to be able to answer all your questions in the end. So these are questions that we have to ask on every single infant death. The one thing, the one tip I always like to make sure that I point out about the SUDI form, and like I said, I do not go to a scene without the SUDI form, but the only, I, the only thing I don't like about the form is the progression of the questions. Because if, you, if you've ever looked at the form, or I don't know if anybody has a form in front of themselves, but in front of themselves right now, but the very first page of the SUDI form, you're collecting the basic information that you're going to collect on everything. The very next section is the witness interview questions, which are the hardest questions to ask and the hardest questions for a family member to answer, the, the nitty-gritty, the details of the actual event. I leave those for last. I go straight from collecting the demographics, and I flip to the third page and start with the infant medical history. That can give a family member pause to think about the past 72 hours to really think about what has happened, um, to see, you know, to kind of focus on something other than the horrible, horrible event that just happened. So I would start with that page three at the very bottom, infant medical history, where you're collecting information about the past 72 hours of the death, and then you can proceed through the form and collect the rest of the information, and in the end say, okay, now I have to ask you the really, really hard questions. And that's when the investigator gets the nitty-gritty of that timeline. When was this infant last placed? How were they placed? Who placed them? Getting that timeline. When was that infant last known alive? Who 
who knew that they were alive, what position were they at that time, and when was that infant found, and how were they found, and documenting that sleep environment. If they were sleeping with anyone, um, any adults or children, or if they're in an unsafe sleep environment with multiple pillows or blankets or, or things like that. So that's, you know, that's my tip for for the use of the CUD form, it's, it's like that witness interview section, leave it for last because those are the hardest questions for them, the families to, to actually answer because you're going to ask them to relive what just happened to them. Right. Yeah, I agree 100%. Uh, for those out there, the listeners, that uh, they can go to my website, cornertalk.com, and under resources for downloadable forms. The SUDI form is there, and the SUDI guidelines are there. All of that can be downloaded for free. Um, the SUDI uh, report form is there. And and I agree. Going through it, it I always skip that part, too, because I, I, want it, I, want, I don't want to upset them and then have to come back and ask about pregnancy. So, yeah, I always go through all that stuff first and, and then come back to it. And then, and then talk about just when we're on this form, because they got to be familiar with this form. Uh, at, at the, the, very, the end of page 7 and then page 8, uh, end of page 7, of course, is, is an area for scene diagram and a forensic chart. Uh, we need to kind of uh, tell them how to use that. And then the summary for pathologist. It seems self-explanatory, but for the, somebody out there that has no idea what that means, um, what are page seven and eight, what are their importance of, are they for your pathologist? Okay. So when you're talking about uh, the diagram, so if, if there's something in particular on that infant that you're trying to document, maybe it's just something as simple as the the uh, pattern of lividity on on the baby's face. Um, you you can use those diagrams um, to note that. And the scene diagram is if you were, you know, this kind of might even be a little old school where they would actually sketch a scene. Um, I don't, you know, as things progress and people are more digitally advanced, um, I don't know if everybody still continues to actually draw sketches of the scenes anymore. Some agencies still do. And when you're talking about the checklist at the back, the che- the, somewhat, the summary for the pathologist is basically, you know, back um, when when we were when the CDC was developing this um, protocol, they put a they put a um, a survey out to all the um, forensic pathologists and asked them what are the top 25 things that you want to know prior to the start of an autopsy, and basically that is the culmination of the checklist. So they want to know. They, these are the indicators that they want to know prior to the start of an autopsy. So that's that's basically what that checklist is and how it came about. Right, which which goes back to what I say all the time is a pathologist do not work in a vacuum. They have to have as much information as you have you yes. know, to, to be able to perform their autopsy. Um, one of the exactly. things I want to point out, too, when we're talking to family, and, and, and of course this is part of the preparation time, we need to think ahead and not rush these scenes if I see a problem with a death investigation uh, or of an infant death investigation from the, from the EMS on, everybody wants to rush the scene. The EMS wants to haul dead babies. And I, I made enough EMS people mad about saying that I'll let that go for now, but they want to haul dead babies. And then the police uh, want to rush it because nobody wants to be there. Who want, nobody wants to be there. It's one thing when grandpa dies. It's one thing when some 30-year-old commits suicide. That's one thing. When a baby dies, we don't want to be there. The police don't want to be there. And let's rush, rush, rush and get out. This right. is the biggest time in an infant death you, don't, you should not rush because that infant no. is so easily killed. You know, it takes a little bit more to yep. kill me. 
Okay, but that infant can be killed with just a very simple light blanket over their face. And if you don't have the information, you know, um, and so, yeah, so so don't don't be rushing scenes. But but so you're the medical legal investigator. Um, Police have been called, ambulance called, whatever. You're the last to know, of course. So you arrive on the scene. What are some of the first things us as investigators need to do? We pull up, we get out of the car. Boom. What should be our first priority and what should we do? Well, first of all, depending on if, where your scene's at, it's either the emergency room or, or at a residence or wherever the scene's at. So kind of the protocol that I have, um, if I'm responding to a scene, as I will always get information from whoever's reporting of what's, what's happening, what's the scenario. When I get on scene, I always want to know who, who, is, who is here. You know, not every police officer is going to be in uniform with a badge. So I want to know exactly who is on scene and, I, and tell me, is it a family member? Is it a neighbor? Is, you know, who are all these people? Because you're going to ask a law enforcement, uh, you're going to talk to them a little bit differently than you're going to talk to a family member. You know what I mean? Um, so you want to know exactly who is all on scene. Then as a death investigator, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through and I want to see that baby. I'm going to d- photograph everything. Everything's going to be photographed before anything is going to be moved. You're going to follow your standard proto- you know, interviewing and, and scene uh, protocols um, with as, as you would do any scene protocol. Um, another, another topic that's been um, discussed is... Um, should families be afforded the opportunity to hold their, their infant? Now, I'm going to tell you, as a death investigator, you're going to have one chance to build rapport with the family member. So once I know who everyone is on scene, I go up to the family and introduce themselves and express my most sincerest condolences for their loss and um, tell them that I will be with them momentarily because, of course, I want to see... I want to see the baby first, and I want to get everything photographed first. Um, it's really critical for infants um, to photograph any postmortem changes immediately, especially if the lividity patterns aren't fixed. And once the baby starts being manipulated, either by first responders or family members holding them, that lividity pattern you know, could shift and move. So you, when it's critical, knowing and documenting sleep environments, and if there's any lividity pattern at all on their face, you want to make sure that you, you digitally document that. So you want to make sure that you're taking your photographs. And if you have, um, if you have the use of a, a video recorder, to be able to uh, video record these reenactments, that is also something really great to do, depending on the resources of your of your office. Right. So let's so talk. Once, let's talk a little bit about. Um, you just mentioned that uh, scene reenactment. Um, maybe we can come back to that. Maybe we talk about it now. Should we talk about that now or what? What do you think? Well, um, it's important to note that you will you will actually do your interview with the family first. The scene re- reenactment is critical for uh, for these types of deaths, but it is the most difficult thing for the family to do. So it it has to be the last thing you do. Just like the 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 nitty gritty questions on the SUDI form, you leave those for last. So you will you will do all of your interviews with the family. You'll go through that SUDI protocol with the family, and these are very long scenes. It, it takes me on average about four hours to do a scene 
for these types of deaths. They're just, it is what it is. You can't rush these people. You have to be patient um, with these people. You know, an empathetic, non-confrontational approach, that's the way you have to approach these types of scenes. So you'll do, once you have viewed the baby and taken your photographs of the baby and the, and um, to document those postmortem changes, you'll go straight on to do, conducting your interview. You'll separate your witnesses, just like other standard uh, interviewing pro- uh, protocols. You'll separate your witnesses, and you'll go through the SUDI protocol um, with both, you know, whoever, however many witnesses you have. You know, you'll go through that protocol with them, um, and then after you've conducted the Sudi form in the interview, then you have to pose the question of a critical part of what we do on these is what we refer to as a scene recreation, a doll recreation. Um, There's been multiple comments um, or discussions of what's the best doll to use. Um, There's really no empirical data on the subject to say one, any, any particular doll is better than another, but you need to find a doll that's posable, movable. You can use a rag doll as long as you can recognize where's the face. Some rag dolls have, have no markings on the front or the back, and when you're photographing a, a doll that doesn't have any markings, you need to know where's the face. So if you have a doll that has a face and you're positioning it and posing it, that's really the only requirements. There's been talk about maybe you should use a, an opposite race doll with an, you know, like an African American doll with an, a Caucasian family. Personally, I think it's a comfort level of the investigator. I have an, uh, an um, a Caucasian doll that I use on every single one infant death that I use because I don't look at it as a Caucasian doll. I look at it as that's my tool, and I'm very comfortable using that tool with every single family. But I, I would say as an investigator, you need to find the tool that you are comfortable using. So if, if, if it's in your head that you have to use an opposite race doll, then do it. Um, it's a comfort level. Personally, I think it's a comfort level. So, um, so the reenactment is the very last thing you do. So I don't know if you want to start talking about the reenactment process now. Well, or... let's, let's just cover that for just a minute before we get into some of the other things. Uh, the reenactment... Um, is is critical, and I know there's. A, I've had cases over the years where um, they've not been done, and it's and it's really hard actually to to get a good summary of the report. Um, I one thing that years ago that I did not do, and um, that you actually introduced me to, was these placed and found placards. Um, I mean, I would yeah. do the placed and found, and I would take pictures, and I would I would put that in my report, and. But to actually have a placard put there, uh, and there's going to be in the show notes of, of this episode for those listeners, you can go to the show notes and see pictures of what I mean by placed and found placards. I've got some reenactments in there. Uh, but tell us what they are and kind of how you came up with them in this big scientific way that you'd created these things. No, there's not. There's no scientific way how I created them. It, it was just through um, conversations, uh, being involved with the CDC SUDI protocol, Someone and I don't even know who created it. Uh, all of a sudden, they're like, "Hey, we should have we should put placards in there," and I'm like, "Yeah, that's a great thing." So they, you know, I got on my computer, I typed the word "placed," and I put a ruler on it, and I put our county logo on it, and I hit print, <laughs> and I laminated it, and then I did found. 
same thing. I put a ruler on it. I put my logo on it, and I hit print, and then I laminated it, and then I it lasts on live. So it's it's been a great tool to just throw in the scene, so you know exactly. You know, it's the picture itself. It tells you what it is versus right. me showing it to the pathologist and saying this is the place position and this is the found position. Right, and it so. makes so much. It makes <laughs> so much sense. I mean, whether it's a, a pathologist, whether it's a jury, wh- whoever it is. But, exactly. But exactly. You, you and I have been out this for a long time. For years, we didn't do that, and we had to go through all this explaining. All it took was a piece yeah. of paper. <laughs> Exactly. It's it's no scientific thing. It was like, okay, I can do this. I know how to type and I know how to laminate. Right, right, exactly. I got all I got all crafty one day. Yeah. So so one thing I want I want to talk about is is dealing with uh, police. Now I'm coming at this from a, a medical legal death investigator side. Um, I, you know, I've worked I work police side as well. So a lot of our listeners are police, but but there has to be a level of cooperation. Um. Two oh, sides have two sides have the same job, but yet a little different. Um, and and you know, again, one's rushing, one don't want to rush. Um, but your protocols for a, a medical legal death investigator, the police have to recognize those. And you work several counties, so so tell us how do we get our police on board to where they know what we want, they are agreeing to that, and we have this cooperation because we've got you know again a lot of rural areas where the police and the coroner's investigators and things they have to work together um what is the best way to kind of approach that and what does the police need to know that you, our job is okay well again this is something that well working with your child fatality review panels uh every state has a uh, child fatality review panel i don't know about extending countries i don't know if there's other countries that listen to this but the uh child fatality review panel they that evolved in Missouri in the early 90s, that brought that multidisciplinary approach uh, to the table and encouraged, you know, communication and cooperation through these agencies. Um, when we started using the Prodi, uh, the SUDI protocol, we had obstacles. We had law enforcement that were used to doing it one way, and they didn't know what what to expect from our office, and all of a sudden we're we're doing these scene recreations with dolls, and they're like, what are you doing? So it's education. Let's all come to the table, and let's all talk about this. It does need to be a multidisciplinary approach. So we had some quirks and stuff, so um, we just worked it out. And once they realized that, oh, yeah, this is, this is a great way to proceed, law enforcement that in the communities and uh, the counties that I work, they're, they're all fantastic. They're all aware. And I've been around so long that now all of a sudden we're having a new crew. We've got younger, younger detectives that look like very, very young when I get on scene. And I'm like, are you old enough? I'm, I'm like, so now I see a, a, a new era of investigators and detectives that I'm like, well, I think we need to do some personally in my areas. I'm like, I think we need to do some in-service because they are, they don't know what to expect from me now. So that's actually how I'm proceeding in my counties is saying, um, hey, let's do some in-service because the first time I come to a scene and I have a new detective, he doesn't know what to expect. You know, there's a level of, I don't, you know, a level of unsure, you know, they're unsure. So I want to make sure everybody's on the same page. So, um Right, so so that's, a lot what, of, that's what I'm doing in my areas. It's like do, just doing some in-service, like this is what we do. These are the SUDI protocols. We do these dial reenactments. And basically law enforcement lets, lets me take the lead. They're right alongside me. We do this. We do this in tandem. They let me take the lead. I give them a copy of the SUDI protocol. They're documenting the answers or the, um, 
the information as the witness is giving it, so they have their copy, I have my copy, and then they, they let me proceed through the interview, proceed through the reenactment. We all take our own photos, and then in the end, if something comes about at autopsy that this is something other than an unsafe sleep thing, then law enforcement takes the lead. Right, and all of that, so is, I, I like what you say about the in-service because, again, that is just a level of cooperation. You're training them in yeah. a way. And and uh, I kind of chuckled when you said they get on the scene and you ask if they're old enough because I've just had that happen here re- recently. I was talking to somebody else about that very thing, and uh, you know, I've been at this for, well, way, way a long time. And so I know I was 21 at one point, and I get that. But now I'm looking at these 21, 22-year-olds, and I'm thinking – you know, we really shouldn't let cops be cops till they're 30. And obviously that's not true. <laughs> but I mean, you know, I, I, you know, I've been at this 30 years and I look back and see these kids and I'm like, but, but it's not a bad thing. That's what it is. The young kids come in and eventually, you know, they, yep. and, and when I started in this, you'll know these names. A lot of my listeners won't. But when I started in this, I, I had mentors like uh, Major Jim Squires, uh, Major Mike Copeland out of Franklin County, uh, both of which, um, of course, have recently died. Uh, major Mike Copeland was a, was a major influence to me, a, a mentor my entire career. Uh, my career in law enforcement and investigations was because of Mike, um, and he was a fabulous investigator. Um, but see, yeah. you know, as we grow older, Kathleen, these other, our mentors start to die off. And, and someone told me uh, yeah, that's true, but then we become the mentors. You know, uh, we become exactly. the ones that the younger people are looking up to, um, which, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, you know, always feel comfortable with that. But, but anyway, they start looking up to us. So, with that said, that means uh, we have to be the ones helping them learn these protocols and how to do these death investigations, especially when it comes to uh, infants and things, so that they can continue passing it, it along. So, yeah, that's just a, a cycle of life, as you call it. But, but the cooperation yep. begins before a death scene. It begins with these in-services. It begins with these things. And most generally, uh, if it begins there over a cup of coffee or over an in-service, you don't have the headbutting, you know, uh, that comes along at, at a scene. So, um, exactly. So, exactly. We, we so talk- when you see these turnovers, that's when you're, then you need to be proactive and say, hey, I think you have a lot of turnovers. Before we have an infant death, let's talk about this. You know, so we're all on the same page for when it does happen because it will happen. Exactly. Oh, it it will happen. Uh, let's move. Let's switch gears just a little bit. Uh, infant death. Uh, of course, we're barely even covering it, but SUDI protocols, things like that. You can read about that. But but there's a difference then between an infant and then like let's say a three to six year old. You know, six to twelve teenagers. Those are all child deaths. But their reasons for dying, uh, their investigation is all a little bit different. And one thing you pointed out, I'm kind of backtracking here. One thing you pointed out in a class that, that, that is spot on. Babies are not little adults. Yep, they're not mini adults. They're they, not miniature they, adults. They have a, <laughs> yes, no, they are not miniature adults. So being knowledge about infant growth and development is something that um, a death investigator needs to be uh, familiar familiar with. So when you talk about developmental milestones, each milestone has an age range, an actual age range when a normally developing infant will reach its milestones. And it, it sometimes it can be quite variable. I think I gave an example of my daughter's um, mobility. Um, but basically, um, 
when you're talking about an infant, if, if they're born preterm uh, prior to 37 weeks, you have to remember that premature babies are going to be assessed differently. So when you're, when you're in there investigating an infant death of a premature baby that's five months old, but it was born two months early, you're going, they're going to be expected to show the same skill sets of a three-month-old, not a five-month-old, because you have to remember they were born two months early. So these, these things are, are important for investigators to keep in the back of their mind so they can assess the believability of the witnesses' uh, accounts to what the infant's movements are and their actions or any kind of safety concerns when you're talking about older children that are mobile. Um, uh, once they start crawling, uh, everything they're going to touch is going to go into their mouth. So um, it, it just helps the investigator ask more informed questions uh, about the abilities and skill sets of the, of the, of the, the older child. Right. And one thing that uh, I talk about this topic that I point out, too, is, you know, babies can die from positional. They can die from rollover. They, all kinds of things can happen. But then when you get into this uh, three, four years old, up to age 12-ish, um, those kids don't die. I mean, outside of major accident and disease, they don't just normally go to sleep at night and not wake up. When SIDS isn't an issue, no. you know. Uh, so you've got a four-year-old, a five-year-old that's dead. um, you know they're not they don't they don't have childhood leukemia and they haven't fell off the back of a truck. Um, we have a scene here. We have because uh, these kids just don't die. Um, the, the approach is kind of the same, but there's some other things we need to watch out for, right? Well, you're going to proceed. Um, I, you know what? I would still use the city form on those kids' deaths because documenting their their history, the past 72 hours, what has been going on with this child in the last 72 hours. Now, you're not going to be concerned about the sleep position. That part of the SUDI form is not going to be relevant. But is it a positional type of thing where they got caught up in something? You know, kids can get um, caught up in um, or squished between um, like a heavy, like a, well, now all these TVs are super light and hung on walls. But remember when you used to have these big box TVs, you know, kids, big, heavy um um, televisions could fall over, or big heavy pieces of furniture could fall over on children. You know, you'll see more kinds of those kind of deaths with the, with the older children. But I still use this, I, I, honestly, I still use that city form to, to still collect the, uh, the medical history on the, on the children. Yeah, certainly, and when they're six even, years even old. Even if they're over 12 months of age. Right, and, and when they're six or seven years old, we don't have to worry about the gestation periods and, and, and all of that no, stuff. No. no, So we just no. use our common yeah, sense on no, what matters. Right. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I'm talking about the, uh, the history of the past 72 hours. Had your child experienced any fever or lethargy or, you know, uh, trouble breathing or were there cyanotic or, you know, had diarrhea or choking or vomiting, you know, those kinds of things. Um, you know, just documenting anything that could contribute. You're, when you're, when you have an, a, basically an unknown, what is going on with this child? It's not trauma and they don't have any previous, uh, diagnoses. It's like, you have to, you have to look at every possible, you know, did they, did they get into any kind of poisoning or something, you know, what did they have access to? What were they around? Look at the environment. Is there anything toxic out that the child could have actually got their hands on, you know, because kids are, you know, <laughs> curious little things, and sometimes they'll 
do unsafe things, and the parent might not know what they're doing, you know? Right, and you, you pointed something else. I don't, I've heard you speak two or three times, and I just know you at one point you pointed out something about um, you got a, a one-year-old. You know, most one-year-olds walk somewhere around one year, 14 months, something, whatever they're walking. So, so what if you got on in your hands and knees at about the level of the child and look around? What's the child's world like? Because the child's world exactly. ain't six foot tall. So what's down here exactly. with the kids? Exactly. So when you have a child that's mobile, um, either scooting or crawling, you have to get on their level and see what, what shiny object would have attracted them. Is it wires exposed in an electrical outlet or is it some kind of uh, prescription pill that accidentally, you know, somebody dropped a pill or, you know, whatever, and they got their hands on or um, what, what is on their level? Exactly. Get on their level. Look around. See what, what, uh, what they might have been, you know, right. drawn what? to or attracted to. And what, or what could they, and maybe get in their mouth or put in their mouth. So let's let's move on up to like a totally different. Still children. Um, in in Missouri, of course, it's you know seventeen, uh, eighteen. Uh, federally, it's eighteen. So we have a fifteen, sixteen year old die. It's not a not not cancer. It's not a car accident. We have a fifteen year old die. That's still a child death. I mean, we're, you know, sometimes we think about child death as you know this this six month old or this two year old. A fifteen-year-old is still a child death. Um, yes, it is. We still have to investigate that as a child death, and of course, in Missouri, um, you know, we uh, all autopsies are mandatory under one, but but uh, under eighteen, a child pathologist needs to review that before we decide if there's an autopsy. But again, they're not many adults. But by the time they get to be fifteen, sixteen years old, they're much more like an adult. They're, the the size, their organs, things are much more like an adult, um, and their development is much more like an adult. But what are some things we need to watch out for in, in that age group, that teenage age group? What are some common reasons for death, and what are some obstacles we may get into? Well, when you're talking about teenagers, you're talk- I, don't, I don't have the Missouri stats right in front of me, but off the top of my head, I would think teen death, I would think of uh, vehicular-related, either pedestrian, passenger, if they're 16, 17, could be a driver. It could be, it could be a 13-year-old driving that shouldn't be driving. Could be ATV accidents, uh, suicides uh, by hangings, by firearms. Um, could be depression-related, bully-related. Um, I we've seen drug overdoses. Um, so those are the kinds that we see in this this area when you talk about that specific age group. That's that's what kind of pops in my head. Yeah, because they're 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 much more risk takers. You know, that's when you do have yes. drugs and alcohol. Of course, you know we have these teenage depressions, and 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 I and I, I feel real sorry for that because when you're when you're fifteen, sixteen years old, and your life you think your life is over over a boyfriend or over whatever, and you kill yourself. I mean, that is so sad because you ain't even started your life yet, and your life is so bad. You, can't, I mean, um, and so that—that's where that most teenage deaths are—is something to do with drugs, accident, suicide, things like that. We're not going to have unless it's a homicide. But again, a homicide of a fifteen-year-old is going to be a little harder than a homicide of a five-day-old. So. Uh, you know, you're going to see sometimes you're going to see see more evidence and things. Uh, and let me go back to the infant thing. You know, the, the, there's caution on on SIDS, and I know the the whole SIDS thing has come way down. And I had a, I talked to uh, some a neurology guy uh, not too long ago about this. Um, 
you know, the reason the SIDS has decreased is, is because obviously we're doing investigations now. We're finding out the real reason rather than just hanging SIDS on it. You know, I had a four day, uh, a few months ago, I had a four day old baby. Um, but mom laid it, laid it down and went to the bathroom and came back and noticed it wasn't breathing. And, you know, as an investigation, it's four days old. Well, it'd been real easy just to hang SIDS on that. Well, the thing is a four day old baby. Why did it die? Turned out it had a, uh, genetic heart defect and the pathologist said i don't understand how it lasted four days um but it did and and after four days the baby died well that's not sids see and that that you know that's why we are doing investigations now is to get rid of this let's hang everything on sids oh exactly yeah sids sids is a diagnosis of exclusion so if you've done a full a full suiting protocol and complete autopsy done on your all your uh, full skeletal x-rays, histology, toxicology, genetic screen, um, and ruled out any unsafe sleep environment, it's so rare to have a baby dead on their back in a crib with nothing external. It is so incredibly rare. Uh, you know, all of our... All of our cases are unsafe environments. Babies in bed with parents, babies swaddled and put on their belly to sleep, um, babies put on their side and then they roll onto their belly, babies put on boppy pillows and have scooched down and become like a chin-to-chest flex position. It's like those are all unsafe, um, all unsafe sleep positions. So it's, um, yeah, you can't just rubber stamp SIDS because another part of what the medical examiner coroner community is, is about public awareness and education. Um, really, it, those are the keys to reducing infant deaths. So if you just rubber stamp SIDS, you're, you're not doing service to the, to, the, to the community to let them know that these are preventable deaths. You flip your baby on your back, put them in an appropriate crib, Without all those external external things, no pillows, no blankets, no stuffed animals, no other people, no other pets, they don't they don't die in that manner. Right. So right, these are right. these are prevention messages that need to be able to you know get out to the community. Right, and that's you know the and that's so part of our job. It, it is it is part of our jobs, and it's part of and that that also is a part of our child potato review process public public education and awareness. So the, um, the most fundamental public health message about safe sleep is the, is the ABCs of sleep. Babies sleep safest alone on their back in a crib. They should be alone on their back in a crib. They don't need all those extra things in the cribs. Right. You go into the Baby's R.S. or one of those, one of those uh, stores that sell baby stuff, and you see all these beautiful, beautiful things with bumper pads and pillows and stuff. It's like, no, babies don't need that. Right. They just need you to need be to alone. Remove those things. Alone and asleep. Yep. Alone on their back and in a crib. Yes. Yes. So not in an adult bed. Not in a not in a chair or on a couch or anything like that. In a, an appropriate crib. Right. Right. And 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 not the one that's been handed down from your uncle Joe from fifty years ago that. Just, you know, all broke that's, down. Yeah, that's been re- that's been recalled. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So one of the last things we're getting short on time here. One of the last things I want to talk about is, uh, you know, in all death investigation, uh, we as investigators need to be a, a watch about our mental health uh, because some of these things get to us. Um, infant and uh, uh, infant and child death is probably a lot worse. No, it's not probably. It is a lot worse than any other any other type of death. And and if you're in a bigger area. 
Uh, one of two things. You're in a large metropolitan area. You're going to work several of them a year, as you do. If you're in a rural exactly. area, then that can get to you. And then if you're in a rural area, you might only see one or two of these a career, possibly. Um, but then those are even bigger impact because you can't say, quote, I'm used to it. Um, so there's a to- both dynamics. One, I'm not used to it. Two, I see it all the time and it's burning me out. Um, what advice would you give some investigators when it comes to child, you know, they work an in infant death, it's really kind of getting to them, or even if they don't think it is, that's an issue. Yeah, you need it, to watch that. Yeah. I mean, doing an infant death investigation is it's extremely stressful it's extremely stressful and can cause a considerable amount of anxiety for investigators. Um, these scenes can be mentally and emotionally exhausted, exhausting, even for the most competent and prepared investigator. They're just draining. So it's important for the investigator to have some strategy for stress release. You know, one of our most valuable resources of support are coworkers because they can relate. They do what we do. You know, I can go home and talk to my husband, but he doesn't quite get it because he's never seen a dead body outside of, you know, uh, going to somebody's funeral. You know, he's never had that raw emotion and experience. So your, your, your coworkers are, are a great source of support, but you need, the, you, you need to find other activities for stress relief you know, whatever it is, gardening, walking, running, you know, uh, a personal hobby, um, reading, whatever. You have to find an outlet for your stress relief. And there are, there are some, you know, after stress, uh, programs out there that you can, you can, um, you can do, but personally you have to take personal responsibility for finding what, what fits you in, in your stress relief, what helps you? Because everybody's different. You know, we all put our pants leg on uh, one leg at a time, but we all have our own personal interests, you know? So, right, right. And that, and that, but and whatever, that, whatever it is for you, you have to make sure you, you figure out what's the best strategy for you and take care of yourself. Because in the end, you have to take care of that stress. You have to find peace with it. Right, and and uh, alcohol and prescription drugs is not your best option. That is not your option. Uh, you know, you uh, go towards the exercise part, <laughs> running, walking, you know, <laughs> or some kind of hobby, you know, something to focus, get your focus off of that tragic event. You know, it, it, some some people could just be reading a book, uh, gardening, uh whatever woodworking stained glass whatever whatever you're into right, but right. just find find it and do it you know one you, thing you that you have uh, to take care of yourself you know you you worked at these investigations for for many many years before you had that sweet little girl you have and now your little oh, girl yeah. is three years old um and yeah. you know when you go to uh, a one-year-old death and you've got a one-year-old baby at home it's different now uh it, it's it is it's, 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 it's really different, different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah. because you're you're relating it to it's more personal. Um, I, you know, I, I know that my case years ago, I had a lady run over her child, extremely accidental, run over her baby, eighteen months old, and it was very emotional for everybody at the scene and at the hospital, and it was just emotional. And you know, two of us had, and this was a girl, and I only had boys, but we have, uh, I had about the same age child, a two year old boy at home, so they're about the same age. It was emotional because I, I, I been really good about compartmentalizing this and not letting it be with my family. Uh, but in the back of my mind, I'm like, I have a, I have a, I have a baby that same age. 
I, you know, all of a sudden it became really real to me. Um, it didn't get an interfere with my job. It's just that y- it becomes more real when you have children and you have children of that age. And, and you had right. made mention, you know, you, you understand uh, developmental paths. You understand what, how, when they walk, when they roll. You read about it. You knew about it. But when you actually had your baby, it's like, oh, yeah, I get it now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I knew textbook. I could read. I I knew what uh, the developmental milestones were from reading a textbook. I never saw it firsthand because I, I didn't have a child till later in life. So my daughter's three and a half now. So I've, you know, those those many many years when I was doing all these SUDI forms, I'm like, or SUDI investigations, I I never had the experience of watching an infant make those make those meet those developmental milestones. So now it is a different. I, I do feel differently when I'm on scene. I feel myself trying to pinch myself from, you know, expressing any more emotion on scene because, you know, you want to hold yourself to the utmost professionalism on a scene and you don't want to, you know, you don't want to seem overly emotional with a family member. You got to hold it together. But I feel myself going, oh my goodness, I feel their pain deeper in my soul than than I've ever had because I relate. I have a child that I love more than anything in this world. And if anything happened to her, what would I do? How could I handle that? Right. So and I, I, just th- really, I think really it helps with empathy for these families. I think it helps with yeah, our empathy. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah, sure. We, we can understand. Yeah. So, well, well, Kathleen, I'm going to let you go. Thank you very, very much for uh, coming on and sharing with us today. I very, very much appreciate it. Your, your asset to the death investigation community. And I appreciate you sharing uh, with us. I, I'm sure if anybody has any questions specifically for you, they can probably uh, just contact. Where would be the best place to contact you if someone said, you know what, I really want to ask Kathleen a question. Where would be the best place without interfering with anything else? Oh, sure. They can email me. My email's up all the time. Um, it's Katie. It's K-A-D as in dog, I-E, at SLU, S-L-U dot E-D-U. Okay, and I'll put that in the show notes too, cornertalk.com. They can find this episode and and uh, and they can contact you if they have any questions or whatever. Uh, so again, uh, Kathleen, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for all you do, and I and I appreciate your leadership in this in this field. And and hopefully in a few months we can have you back on. We can talk about another topic. Okay, I appreciate it. All right, you thank take you. Mm-hmm, bye bye. All right. All right, I'm back with you live, so to speak. Hey, I know you got a lot out of listening to that conversation with Kathleen. Remember, if she can do anything for you or answer any questions, she would be glad to do so, and so would I. All you have to do is reach out to either one of us, and we'll be glad to get involved answering questions, helping you in whatever way we can. Remember, if you want me to come to your conference, to your state, let me know. I can work that out and come and help teach there and be your conference speaker, things like that. Also, remember, we have virtual training. And so if you can get a few people in a room wherever you're at and you've got a webcam, a good Internet connection and a screen or TV, you can project me to the room. I can see you. You can see me and we can teach up to four hours that way. Very cost-effective training. You still get ABMDI credits. You still get everything like all the other courses, but it saves a lot of money in time and travel, and you get a different instructor coming in teaching. So if you want to talk about virtual training, again, contact me, and I'll be glad to work with you on that as well. So until next week, everybody, find a way to be a blessing because the blessings will come back to you tenfold. And above all, be safe. 
Thanks for listening to Coroner Talk, a DSPN media production. Visit our website at coronertalk.com and be sure to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash coroner training. 3617-1024 scene on route to morgue.